With Das Lied von der Erde, Mahler enters a new phase. When he became aware that his own death might not be far off, Mahler needed more than ever to find true reconciliation with his own mortality. The influence of Oriental culture as a means of resolving his deep-rooted inner conflicts makes itself felt for the first time and has a profound effect upon his stylistic approach. He found in Eastern metaphysics a palliative that must have calmed his perturbed spirit and given new meaning to the existential truths that emerged from his earlier symphonies. In a book of Oriental poems called The Chinese Flute, Mahler found delicate lyricism and transcendental mysticism that suited his mature sensibilities. This book contains not the original poems in German translation, but paraphrased versions of them by Hans Betke, taken from French and German translations. The poems were written in the High Tang dynasty from the 7th to the 9th century AD. Mahler pored over the book with great fascination. It provided a much-needed stimulus for expressing the tortured inner feelings that had darkened his spirit. What graceful lyrical art confronted me here, he remarked. I felt a shy, transient tenderness of lyrical utterance. I gazed into a verbal art wholly taken up with telling images, rending shafts of light into the melancholy riddle of existence. None of his previous answers to questions about the meaning of life that stirred within him could satisfy him any longer. The message of love as the progenitor of creativity that he offered in the Eighth Symphony must have struck him as somewhat naive, possibly too transcendental. He needed to approach life's finitude from yet another angle, to accept both his and all humankind's inescapable fate with equanimity. While Mahler never rejected the metaphysical principles that underlie the Second and Eighth Symphonies, their message of spiritual redemption may have given him little comfort in confronting his own death. He was intuitively aware that he had not yet fulfilled his quest for meaning that would justify human suffering. He must again confront death and his inner demon that incessantly tormented him. Yet as a young student, he wrote to a friend, O beloved earth, when wilt thou take the deserted one to thy bosom? O eternal mother, receive a lonely, restless heart. It was his lonely, restless heart that poured itself out to his friend Joseph Steiner during the same period. Behold, he says, mankind has banished him from itself, and he flees from its cold and heartless bosom to you, to you. O oh, care for the lonely one, the restless one, universal mother. Many years after Mahler wrote these heartbreaking words, at the time he composed Das Lied, he sank once again into the lonely depths of his tortured soul. If I am to find my way back to myself, I've got to accept the horrors of loneliness. I speak in riddles, since you do not know what has gone on and is going on in me. It is assuredly no hypochondriac fear of death, as you suppose. I have long known that I've got to die. Without trying to explain or describe something for which there probably are no words, I simply say that at a single fell stroke... I have lost any calm and peace I ever achieved. I stand vis-a-vis -vis de rien, and now at the end of my life 
have to begin to learn to walk and stand. What a resuscitating influence Betka's volume of Chinese poems must have been for Mahler. Their simplicity and charm, their love of the earth in all its manifestations, their intimacy of expression all thoroughly captivated him. For Mahler had always loved the beauties of nature and saw them as a means to discover the essence of life. Now, with thoughts of death ever present, his whole being cried out for what Bruno Walter aptly referred to as a transcendental sense of redemption that would take on a more worldly perspective than it had in the Eighth Symphony. Even though that massive choral symphony, taken on one level, sought to reconcile internal with external manifestations of the spirit, the grandeur of its conclusion may have overshot its mark when viewed from the calmer, simpler, and more nature-oriented perspective of Oriental philosophy. In Das Lied, Mahler views life from a multiplicity of perspectives, both tragic and joyous, and tries to make sense of the entire life experience. He describes such personal aspects of human life as loneliness, nostalgia, youth, beauty, senseless abandon, fear, and dread, as if seen through the eyes of one who knows that he has little time left on earth. As Philip Barford suggests, Mahler's orientation undergoes a shift from the Occidental perspective on consciousness in the Eighth Symphony to the Oriental focus on the unconscious that pervades Das Lied von der Erde. The objective outlook of the former now gives way to the subjective sensibilities of the latter. Conceptualization becomes internalized, more sensitized to the inner spirit. Mahler admitted to Walter that Das Lied was, for him, the most personal thing I ever created until now. A line from the text of Der Abschied says it all. I shall no longer seek the far horizon. My heart is still and waits for its deliverance. Walter himself was astonished by what appeared to be a total reorientation of Mahler's style and musical persona. He said, Can the man who reared the structure of the eighth in harmony with the everlasting be the same as the author of the Trinklied von Jama der Erde? The man who slinks alone in autumn to the trusty place of death in search of comfort, who looks at youth with the commiserating eyes of age, at beauty with muted emotion, who seeks to forget in drink the senselessness of life and finally leaves it in deep melancholy. Is it the same master who, after his gigantic symphonies, constructs a new form of unity out of six songs? He is scarcely the same man or composer. All his previous work had grown out of his own sense of life, now the knowledge that he had serious heart trouble was breaking his inner hold on life. The loosening of all previous ties altered his entire outlook. The Nietzschean principle of eternal return, implicit in the eighth, but emerging from a more cosmic vision, provided Mahler with the means by which to justify life in the face of death. The principle of eternal return was already implicit in Mahler's earlier works, particularly in Kinter Totenlieder and the Wunderhorn song Das Irdische Leben. It governs both the underlying of philosophy and symbolic references in Das Lied. The stirring cries of Ewig, Ewig, forever, forever, that were heard at the end of the Eighth Symphony are transfigured into gentle expressions of an acceptance 
of the everlasting circle of existence at the end of Das Lied. In the eighth, Ewig resounds like a summons to find fulfillment eternally in the ever-renewing creative process stimulated by love that draws us onward with revitalized animus. In Das Lied, this same word becomes a final response to the terrifying vision of death and nothingness that grips us with horror in the first movement. This response affirms life because it wills eternity. Thus, the fundamental argument of Das Lied is basically Nietzschean. If death must come, we must accept it as if part of a perpetual life cycle that will continue forever. Structurally, as is typical of Mahler's symphonies, it is in Das Lied's outer movements that this principal argument is presented. The first movement describes the essential problem that requires resolution. Does or can life have any value if it must end? In the process of stating this existential question, Mahler evokes extraordinarily vivid images of death as the antagonist. The finale provides the solution by enveloping death within the endless circle of life. Superficially, the inner movements appear as merely fanciful intermezzi that divert our attention from the conflict around which the work resolves. But below the surface, these movements are both musically and philosophically related to the outer movements and play a significant role in the resolution of the dreadful dilemma presented in the first movement, Can Life Overcome Death? Constantine Floros takes a somewhat different approach. He finds three basic philosophical principles that pervade the entire work. Love of nature and life, the futility of all things, and the mortality of mankind. These concepts are not mere isolated thoughts, lacking context and connection, but burning questions that must be answered, if, as Mahler said in his program notes for the Second Symphony, we are to go on living. All three principles are already contained in the first movement. Not only does it conjure up the dreaded presentment of death in both veiled statements, dark as life, so is death, and the horrific vision of an ape crouching in the graveyard, sneering at man, but it mocks life with its rotting trifles, in the very same verse in which appear references to nature, prophetic of the finale, that seem to affirm life's eternal value. The heavens are ever blue, and the earth will long stand fast and blossom in spring. In the finale, the nihilism of the first and fifth songs that either responds to or completely ignores the import of the songs placed between them is ultimately negated in the concluding evocation of eternal return. The first of Floro's principles overwhelms the others, and new meaning is found in the eternity of nature and implicitly in humankind. In a certain respect, Das Lied is an earthly, humanistic response to the otherworldly answers to life's existential questions presented in the Second Symphony. Viewed from a different perspective, the dread of death that pervades Western thought especially prevalent during the Romantic era, is countered and ultimately mollified by an essentially Eastern metaphysical perspective. Malarian angst is overcome by an af affirmation of life that has Oriental overtones, expressed in the love of nature and the cyclical order of human existence. Mahler mirrored the Orientalism of the poems in the music by utilizing Eastern modalities and creating sinewy, delicate textures, According to Owen Bauer, 
Mahler had some knowledge of Chinese music from history books that were available at the time. Now, thanks to Henri-Louis de Lagrange, we also know that Mahler heard Chinese music on cylinder recordings. Chinese literary and art forms were very popular in Europe at the turn of the 20th century and influenced operatic works by Puccini, Mascagni, and Buzzoni. In Mahler's use of oriental modes, such as the pentatonic scale, he was ahead of his time. Only Puccini anticipated him in Madame Butterfly. At first, Mahler called the new work Die Flirt aus Jade, the Jade Flute, after the title of Betke's volume, but then changed it to Das Lied von Jammer der Erde, the Song of the Earth's Sorrow, before finally settling on the title it now bears. These title changes are significant in that they indicate a gradual change in Mahler's overall conception of the work, from a series of songs on Chinese poetry to a symphonic work that deals with the tragic fate of humanity, and ultimately to a more positive vision of human life, relegating the word yamer, sorrow, to the first movement alone. Mahler made extensive changes in the text of each poem, and added a few verses of his own. Even some of the titles for the movements are changed in ways that indicate Mahler's growing awareness of the philosophy emerging from the union of these poems with each other, and with music composed for them. Donald Mitchell provides an excellent analysis of the significance of Mahler's textual modifications in his book Songs and Symphonies of Life and Death, the third volume of his extensive study of Mahler's compositions. When it first became clear to Mahler that his work in progress was outgrowing the confines of a song cycle and taking on symphonic proportions, he considered calling it a symphony of songs. But according to Alma Mahler, the thought of composing a ninth symphony terrified him. So many composers, such as Beethoven, Bruckner, Schubert, Spohr, Dvorak, had not lived to compose more than a ninth. The number nine had taken on an aura of fatalism, that Alma claimed Gustav had succumbed to. According to her, Mahler realized that with his monumental Eighth Symphony, he had reached the high point of his career as composer. Should he tempt fate and call this song symphony his ninth? Although the completed work was undeniably a symphony, Mahler decided not to give it a number at all, but merely to subtitle it a symphony for tenor, alto, or baritone, and orchestra. When it became clear that he would not only outlive Das Lied, but also write yet another symphony, he would call that work his ninth, although it was truly his tenth. Alma suggests that he did so in hopes of cheating death and conquering fate. Of course, he did not live to complete what he would have called his tenth. In the Eighth Symphony, Mahler infused elements of oratorio, opera, and cantata into symphonic form. In Das Lied, he attempts to unify symphonic and song forms. Sonata, rondo, and variation forms traditionally found in the classical symphony are employed as structural frameworks for various song movements. The entire work is unified motivically by the use of a recurrent series of notes, or a pentatonic row, if you will, A, G, E, D, C, all or a few of which may be found in each movement as the source material from which Mahler derives his themes and motives. Mahler orchestrated the work in an exotic chamber music fashion, resembling his orchestration of Kintotonleder and the Rickertleder. 
woodwinds play a larger role than they had in any of the symphonies since the third. The use of celesta and mandolin produced distinctively oriental coloristic effects from simple arpeggiation and strummed chords that appear in the seventh and eighth symphonies. Strings are not as prominent as the purveyors of thematic material here as they are in Mahler's previous symphonies, and brass are consigned principally to the outer movements, where their power is needed in strong passages and climaxes. For the most part, textures are delicate and sinewy rather than thickly woven with complex contrapuntal lines, as in the eighth, or infused with rock-solid orchestral tutties, as in the seventh. Harmonic vagueness replaces the tonal stability of the eighth. To his characteristically major-minor tonal displacement, Mahler adds pentatonic scales deftly employed with other oriental touches to create a mystical atmosphere and enhance the introspective nature of the poetry. Elements of quasi and bi-tonality inspired his young colleagues Schoenberg, Berg, and Webern. Mahler also returns to an overall harmonic scheme that has been referred to as progressive tonality and utilizes tonal discontinuities and disruptions that were the hallmark of his middle period symphonies. Rhythmic complexity abounds to a greater extent than in any of his previous works. Even Mahler commented on the difficulties that conductors will have to face in controlling the hemiolas and complex cross rhythms in the final movement. He shocked Bruno Walter by asking, Have you any notion of how this should be conducted? I haven't. Throughout the work, a transparent linear style contrasts with textually complex counterpoint, yet clarity is maintained by the deft use of chamber ensembles. Thus Mahler combines the sinuousness of Kindertotenlieder with the breadth of symphonic scope. Donald Mitchell has pointed out many common elements between Das Lied and Kindertotenlieder. Among them, the framing of relatively brief inner movements with more substantive outer ones, the last of which resolves the entire work, similar to the framework of the second and third symphonies. The complex musical and poetic symbolic organization of the opening movement that provides the principal conflict to be resolved in the finale, also characteristic of the second, third, and fifth symphonies, and the handling of strophic form employed in most of the song movements. Yet none of Mahler's earlier song cycles approaches Das Lied in subtlety and cohesiveness. Instead of merely introducing elements of song form into his symphonies, as he did in the symphonies of his Wunderhorn period, Mahler conjoins symphony and song cycle into a new genre that will have a profound influence upon composers in the 20th century. But incidental cross-references in the poems alone would not have sufficed to create symphonic unity. While in the eighth, the interconnection of diverse texts was a measurable advance in the development of song symphony, in Das Lied, Mahler more fully develops the use of symphonic form as a structural medium within which to convey poetic texts. Mahler achieves a perfect unity of text and music in the development of motivic thematic application with textual connections. He develops themes from evolving streams of basic motives. They are presented not as a succession of independent ideas, but in a manner that inverts the progressive thematic development that takes place in Part Two of the Eighth Symphony. In Das Lied, 
a principal motive determines a series of different musical ideas that derives from it. For example, at the beginning of the Trinklied movement, horns pronounce a series of notes, A, G, E, D, C, that contains a motivic cell, C, E, G, A, that form a motto, which gives rise to various thematic and motivic formations that appear in each movement. This tretatonal motto is broken up into two three-note cells of C-D-E and A-G-E, the latter in the pentatonic mode. Mahler varies the order and tonal basis of these notes so that they adapt perfectly to the different contexts in which they appear. Occasionally he combines them into chords, a technique later used by the serialists. These four notes, in turn, contain the major triads of two related keys, C and A. Professor Robert Bailey has analyzed the relationship between the C and A tonalities that are prevalent in Das Lied, taken from the notes of the principal motto. According to him, the juxtaposition of these two keys is derived from Tristan and Isolde. The relationship between this opera and the song symphony becomes even more significant at the close of the work when both tonalities are juxtaposed and the resulting tonal vagueness creates a sublime ambivalence similar to that at the end of Tristan. The principle of thematic motivic development in Das Lied differs from that in the eighth and is in a sense an advance upon it. In part two of the eighth, the principal theme is generated through numerous variations that gradually form it, whereas in Das Lied, motives are used as the basic means by which to fuse together, thematically, the various song movements. Although Schumann concluded his song cycles Dichteliebe and Frauenliebe und Leben with piano postludes that summarize the musical material contained in the songs, the concept of symphonic integration through thematic motivic synthesis had not been utilized in an orchestral song cycle before Das Lied. Frequent use of significant intervals also provides a connective element. Mahler's favorite interval, the fourth, has motivic significance here, functioning as a motto that generates many of the themes heard throughout the work. In both parts of the eighth, this interval began several themes and variations, including the first to be heard. It is also the first interval that appears in Das Lied. The falling stepwise motion of the avix sung at the end of Das Lied relates them to many movements of other Mahler symphonies, such as the Nietzsche movement of the third and the first movement of the ninth. Since this intervallic motive is a falling major second rather than a minor second, it connotes farewell, as it did in Austro-Germanic music long before Mahler's time. Its kinship with the motive of woe, a falling half-step instead of a whole step, implies a countervailing relationship between these two motives that plays a significant role in the symphonies of Mahler's last period. For instance, some commentators consider the conjunction of the falling minor second of woe with the falling major second of farewell in the ninth to convey a sense of resignation to humanity's tragic fate. However, changing a minor interval to a major one has a much more positive connotation. In organizing his diverse texts, Mahler alternates third-person with first-person narratives. Deeply expressive lyricism contrasts with more meditative recitatives 
that link sections of the finale. The singers have cantabile lines that are not independent of, but are incorporated into the orchestral texture in a manner that Mahler had already developed in Kintototenlieder and the Rickertlieder. The vocal timbre of each singer combines with the sonic qualities of diverse instrumental ensembles to produce a variety of coloristic effects. Mahler provides special directions for the singers, showing them what manner of expression he prefers for certain passages, using such instructions as in a narrative tone without expression, or very gently and expressively, meditatively, hesitantly, shudderingly. Vocal directions of this sort point the way to future development of vocal music in the 20th century. Although Mahler did not live to hear the premiere of this extraordinary work, it became one of the principal works with which he has been identified. The brilliant innovations in symphonic and vocal writing and the integration of distinctive stylistic elements had an enormous impact upon such diverse composers as Albin Berg, Arnold Schoenberg, Benjamin Britten, and Dmitri Shostakovich. No composer since Mahler has written a symphony that combines elements of song form and symphonic structure so brilliantly and integrates both musical and textual symbols as skillfully as Mahler did in Das Lied. 